Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke 19, 1 through 10, and this is found on page 878 in your pew Bible. And if you do not have a Bible of your own at home, please take that one with you as a gift from us. We'd really love for you to have it. Again, it's Luke 19, 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and rejoiced and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, and uh, let me just extend my welcome to each of you this morning. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm the campus pastor here, Brookside Campus of Christ Community. We're really glad that you're here this morning. Thanks for coming out in the snow and, uh, and being with us on this day. And as we begin and uh, look at this passage from Luke chapter 19, I'd love to ask a uh, prayer and just pray for uh, us to be able to discern what God is calling each one of us to do. Um, he's promised that his word is a light in our lives. And so I just want to pray now that his light would shine in our hearts and our minds as we look at this passage now. So Father in heaven, we're grateful that you've spoken to us in your word, that you are the father of lights who gives every good and perfect gift to uh, his children. And so I pray that now as we look into your word, uh, that you would shine your light in the places that I know I need it to shine. I know each of us need that work of your spirit in our lives. So we pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have any of you ever heard of Blue Monday before? Has anyone heard of this idea of Blue Monday before? This was a new thing for me. I just found out about this uh, this past week. But there's something called Blue Monday. And it it falls about the third week of January, typically. And it's supposed to be the the most depressing day of the year. And so there's, this is all kind of pseudoscientific. But but there's a formula that's that's used to calculate this. So I've, I've got a picture of the formula here. Um, and let me just kind of walk you through here why, well, it's, it's a Monday, so that's already depressing. That's just, it's guaranteed it's going to be a Monday. Um, but, but, so it's a Monday, and at this point in time, the weather is particularly bad. So it's cold, it's snowing, you're stuck inside, that's January weather. So, so Monday in January. And also, why kind of the third Monday? Well, this is, this is key. Because this is just about the time when um, all of the fun and newness of all the Christmas presents and gifts that we purchased, all that's just starting to kind of wear off. Life's getting back to usual. Right at the same time as the credit card bills and statements for purchasing all that stuff are starting to, to come in. And so there's this both the, you're at the least of enjoyment of that stuff. And now at the kind of the, the you're feeling the, the, the regret or maybe the, the debt of, of that. Um, 
Plus, another thing they point out is this is where you are at. The, you know, everybody's been on their diet now for three weeks. People are grumpy. Or your, your new, resolu- new Year's resolution, you're start, you've, you've been going great for the first two and a half weeks, but now you're starting to slip. And so you have this sense that I need to keep taking action, but your motivation is at its lowest level. So you have this high sense of, of I need to be doing this stuff and the low sense of motivation. So all that stuff comes together. All that adds up and supposedly lakes this year, Monday, January 15th. Uh, Blue Monday, the most depressing day of the year. Um, <laughs> uh, now, again, this is just pseudoscience, but, but I do think it, it touches on something real, especially as it relates uh, to our lifestyles. And, and there's all this pressure during the holidays, during Christmas time, of course, to, you to travel and visit family and entertain and give wonderful gifts, as well as be generous in, in charitable giving. And then in January, just as all of sort of the, the joy of that holiday season is kind of worn off, then those, the bills, the regrets, they start to come in. And perhaps during these late weeks in January, we feel this more acutely maybe than other times of the year, that maybe our lifestyles are outsized or how they can constrain us or add stress and pressure um, even in some cases, true, you know, genuine depression. Um, I think this time of year makes us ask the question, are we, are we really living the good life? In fact, it was about this time uh, in 2016, a couple of years ago, that Rachel and I said, you know, we got to do Financial Peace University. We got to go and figure this out. We can't go through another kind of holiday season like this and, and make the same choices and mistakes with how we're deploying our resources. We've got to get a better plan for this. So I want to ask the question this morning, what does Jesus have to do with all this? I mean, does he have anything to say about our, our lifestyle, about the good life? And how does a relationship with Jesus begin to set us free from the burden of the lifestyles that we so often find ourselves living, in particular with respect to our money, our possessions, our stuff? Because Jesus taught that it was more blessed to give than to receive. And could it be that generosity is is actually the antidote to Blue Monday? And if you don't believe me, or I should say if you don't believe Jesus, that it's more blessed to give than receive, there's lots of studies out there, studies upon studies that, that show that people who are generous are, are happier. They're emotionally happier. They, they're physically healthier. Um, they've done studies that show when you, when you give and give generously that your body releases chemicals that help you fight stress and improve your immune system, those kinds of things. Um, they're more satisfied with life. Their relationships are richer and stronger. And we're in the middle of a series this week uh, where we're looking at Jesus' invitation, the invitation that he's extending to us for, for you, for me to, to trade what so many of us consider normal life for something simply different, uh, simply better. And by better, I, I, I don't mean easier. By simple, I don't mean easier. Anyone who's, who's taken seriously what it means to follow Jesus in life will know that it is not an easier life to follow Jesus. Hopefully it's simpler. Hopefully it's, it's richer. It's not necessarily easier, but it is better. It is different. And so this morning we want to look at the story of Zacchaeus that we heard read for us. And Zacchaeus' encounter 
with Jesus and how it completely transforms him. And I want us to think together about then about several questions that that story raises for us. So we're just going to look at Zacchaeus' story, and then once we've done that, look at a few questions that that story raises for each of us. And we find the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. And Luke, the author of the Gospel, he records this, this moment of Jesus entering the city of Jericho. Now, this point in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is getting ready. To, he's on his way to Jerusalem where he will eventually be arrested and uh, crucified. So this is toward the end of the story. And so Jesus is well known at this point. He's, he's kind of a, has that celebrity status that when he walks into a place, he begins to draw a crowd. And so you can picture the scene. Jesus is walking down Main Street in Jericho. And a crowd is beginning to form, to gather him and kind of follow him down the street. And and then Luke introduces us to Zacchaeus. And what he does, he tells us two things about Zacchaeus. First, he tells us that he's a chief tax collector. And second, he tells us that he is rich. So look at verses 1 and 2. We see this. So he, that's Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Now, before we go any further in the story, though, we need to understand two important things that Luke is communicating in just these first couple of verses. Because they're really packed. There's actually a lot there. And the first is the significance of Jericho. So Jericho sat at the crossroads of probably four or five major uh, trade routes, kind of interstate highways, you can imagine. Um, Lots of of goods and people passed through Jericho because it sat at this major intersection. It's not unlike actually Kansas City is. is We're right here in the middle of the country. Lots of railways and interstate highways intersect, pass through Kansas City. So you have a lot of rail traffic, truck traffic, intermodal traffic here in Kansas City. It's a hub where Lots of goods go in and out of across the country. So that's the first thing. Jericho is this prime real estate for trade. Secondly, though, we have to understand what it means for Zacchaeus to be a tax collector. So in the Roman Empire at this time, uh, they had sort of privatized the collection of taxes. The, Rome didn't have their sort of governmental IRS, Internal Revenue Service, that was doing this. Rather, they, they farmed that out. There's actually a, a term, it's called, it's called tax farming. So they would hire basically private people to do the work of tax collection. And a tax collector would kind of bid on an area and say, I think I can get you know, a million dollars from this, this area this year. And Rome would say, okay, that's good. And then they would be responsible for delivering those taxes to Rome. And then the tax collector made their money by charging the people more than what they had to deliver to Rome. So that, that difference is how they made their money. Um, so that obviously you can begin to see how this would open itself up to abuse and Uh, and oppression and all those kinds of things. So the tax collector could basically charge anything that they wanted, basically anything they could get. And as long as they had a big enough margin between what they owed Rome and what they were able to extract from the people, then they could acquire a lot of wealth. They made that money uh, often in very unjust ways. And so now the picture of who Zacchaeus is begins to emerge. 
Luke tells us that he's a tax collector, but not only that, he's a chief tax collector, which means he's got like a team of people probably working for him. He's advanced, he's built out his team, um, he's doing very well. And Luke adds then that he is rich. Now, in the first century, to say that someone was a tax collector just meant, oh, well, that's a rich person. Like, you just knew. So the fact that Luke adds on, oh, and he's rich, means this guy is really wealthy. He's really, he's done very, very well in this work. He's very wealthy. And again, that wealth was, was probably produced in large part by, by bribes, by graft, and other forms of economic injustice. And again, to be a chief tax collector in Jericho is like having boardwalk on your Monopoly board. Because again, this is prime real estate. And he was able to extract a lot every time someone landed on his space from them. Oh, and one more thing about Zacchaeus before we go on. Zacchaeus was a Jew. So he was one of God's kind of chosen people. He was a Jew, which means that he was hated by the Jewish people because he was a, it was a traitor. He's a collaborator with Rome, this empire that's oppressing us. And he's making money off of his fellow Jewish people and giving it to the oppressive empire. People who were Jewish could not stand Zacchaeus. How could he do this to his own people? So while he was despised by Jews, though, he was really well connected with the other business and political community in Jericho who weren't Jews. So he had kind of this, even this hard place in life where his own people hated him, but the broader business community and political community loved him. So all of this now sets the stage for what happens in the coming verses. So watch what happens in verses 3 through 6. And he, that's Zacchaeus, was seeking to see who Jesus was. Notice he didn't, doesn't say he was seeking to actually meet Jesus necessarily. He's seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Zacchaeus is short. He can't see very well. And so he ran. He ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, to see Jesus, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. So what's happening here? Luke, Luke tells us that Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, that he's seeking Jesus out. But that the crowd is kind of in his way. He can't get through. Maybe it's because they don't like him very much. They're not going to let him through to the front of the line. They're kind of pushing him to the back. Also, he's just short. He can't see. But Zacchaeus, he's not willing to let this deter him. And so he runs I don't want us to miss that. Zacchaeus is running ahead of the crowd. Why is that so significant? Why does Luke record that? Because for someone of Zacchaeus's position and stature, I don't mean his height stature, just his governmental stature, uh, to run in the first century, it was just unheard. It was not done. 
It was very undignified. I mean, you can imagine, I'm really into the crown right now. It would be like, be like the Queen of England running through a crowd to try to see Billy Graham. It's like, no, the, the Queen doesn't run. The Queen sits. People come to her. She doesn't run through a crowd to them. And the same thing with Zacchaeus. People came to Zacchaeus. He didn't run to see them. And yet here we find him running then why does Luke give us this little detail of the sycamore tree? He runs up ahead and he climbs up not just to a tree, but a sycamore tree. Why? Well, I think a couple reasons. So the sycamore tree was a, it had low, wide, strong branches. So it was an easy tree to climb, but it also had large, kind of dense leaves. And so not only could Zacchaeus easily climb the tree, but he could also probably kind of hide in the tree. Because again, he's seeking to see who Jesus was we don't necessarily know, does he actually want Jesus to see? He's just kind of checking Jesus out. He wants to see who Jesus was, but we don't know that he wants to necessarily be found by Jesus. So the tree kind of gives him a little cover. But as Jesus walks on and he comes to the place where Jesus is, he looks right up into the tree. <laughs> Jesus knows he's there. And he says, come down. Zacchaeus, come down. Zacchaeus was seeking Jesus, but it's Jesus who ends up finding Zacchaeus. And when he does find him, he says, come, hurry down, Zacchaeus. I'm going to your house today. I must go to your house today. And at this moment, I can imagine, only imagine, that there is probably just a pin drop silence. I mean, Zacchaeus probably at first is a little bit stunned looking down at Jesus. How did he see me up here? But then he, he, he hurries down and he joyfully invites Jesus to come to his home. But the, the silence is, is quickly broken then by the crowd. Because they're silent at first because they are in utter disbelief and shock. How could Jesus do this? How could Jesus be doing that? Doesn't Jesus know who this guy is? Doesn't he know that Jesus is the one who, Jesus, don't you know who Zacchaeus is? He's the one who's, who's taking from my family. He's the one who's making my life. I'm having trouble feeding my kids because of this guy. Jesus, do you know who he is? He's the one who's made it us, us poor, who's treated us over and over again with injustice. Jesus, you shouldn't be going to this guy's house for dinner. You should be condemning him. He's, an, he's a bad guy. I was thinking, what would that be like for us today? And I was imagining, what, what if Jesus were here in Kansas City? And, he, and he's walking down uh, Main Street in Kansas City. In that section, maybe you, you can picture it, it's kind of that section of Main Street in Midtown before you get to, to downtown. And there's a, a row there, kind of where Oddly Correct Coffee Shop is in some of those spots where there's a bunch of those payday lending shops. You can imagine Jesus walking down Main Street past all these payday lending shops and... Um, the crowd kind of, of people from the neighborhood come out. Maybe a lot of them have payday loans and they're trapped in the cycle of debt and they're, they're excited to see Jesus and they're walking along with him and they're, they're cheering him on. And then all of a sudden, uh, Jesus uh, kind of turns off a, a, side, a side street there. He, he, and he walks over to this, this $300,000 Bentley sedan with tinted windows. Jesus walks right up and, and he knocks on the, on the window and the window comes down and 
who is it sitting in the car but the, the guy who owns all these, these shops? And right there in front of all those who have been oppressed by this, this person and their businesses and their unjust practices, Jesus says, hey, I'm, open the door. I'm getting in. I'm coming to your house. I'm coming to your house for dinner today. You can imagine that they, they drive off to one of those big stately mansions on Ward Parkway. And now do you feel then a little bit with the crowds in verse 7? And when they saw it, they grumbled. He's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Like, wait a second, Jesus. Why are you hanging out with this guy? He's the one who's making our lives so hard and you're getting in his nice car and going to his nice house and spending time with him? They're, they're incensed. They're outraged. They scoff. But Jesus doesn't care. He doesn't care. In fact, one of the things that angers people most about Jesus in the Gospels is his refusal to abide by the hospitality codes of the people of his day. So he's constantly eating and hanging out and spending time with people who he's not supposed to eat and hang out and spend time with. People hate him for that more than just about anything else. So Jesus sits in the grand dining room of this stately Ward Parkway mansion. He's eating with Zacchaeus. And as he's there, something amazing happens. Zacchaeus stands up in front of the whole crowd gathered, in front of all of those business connections, in front of all those political connections who are at his home for this banquet, and he makes a shocking declaration. Look, look at this in verses 8 through 10. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, which is like, come on, Zacchaeus, you've defrauded everyone of a lot of stuff. If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus' salvation proved itself in, its, in his giving. First, in a broad giving to the poor. He just says, this doesn't even have anything to do with, with restitution of, of injustices. He just says right off it, half my stuff, I'm just giving it away. My money, my possessions, uh, my, my nicest donkey, whatever, my nicest car, my transportation. I'm just giving half of the stuff away. I'm going to give it to the poor. The, the Zacchaeus, is, I find this so fascinating given some of the themes in Luke from the very beginning of that Jesus came to proclaim good news to the poor. Zacchaeus' salvation is good news for the poor. Salvation is good news for the poor. And even after he's already said, I'm giving away half my stuff, then he promises, okay, now with what I have remaining, I'm going to make right times four what anything I've taken away from someone else, defrauded. So, you know, if Zacchaeus had cheated you out of a hundred bucks in your taxes, he says, I'm going to give you 400 in return. And another thing I think is fascinating here is that Zacchaeus, he comes up with this on his own. He, we don't have Jesus saying, now Zacchaeus, what it means for you to follow me is you're going to need to give away half your stuff and, and get, 
No, Zacchaeus just spends time with Jesus. He just receives Jesus' grace. And it, it just transforms him. But again, this, Jesus isn't commanded to do this. Jesus isn't telling him this. Rather, Jesus under, Zacchaeus just understood something I think we often forget. I know I forget. Which is when you receive Jesus' grace, you can't help but radically give. When you receive Jesus' grace, you can't help but radically give. It's, it's just an overflow of the joy of the grace that we've received. The favor, the goodness, the kindness of God toward us. When you look at the broader context of this chapter, you actually see there's an amazing contrast going on. So we begin the story of Zacchaeus at Luke chapter 19 when Jesus is in Jericho. But if you go to the very end of chapter 18, you find Jesus just outside of Jericho. And as he's approaching the city, there is a beggar a blind beggar calling out to Jesus. A blind beggar, the poorest of the poor, the most oppressed of the oppressed, calling out to Jesus. And Jesus stops. He sees this person. He gives them sight. He heals them. He restores them. And then here in Luke 19, Jesus sees Zacchaeus. And he heals and restores him. Don't you see, Jesus cares about the poorest of the poor. He sees them and he heals them. He sees and heals the oppressed. And Jesus also sees, heals, rescues the oppressor. Jesus cares about both. He loves both. And when Jesus comes into your life, he transforms your lifestyle. Your relationship with Jesus changes your relationship with money. Your relationship with Jesus, it changes your relationship with money. What this passage, I was so struck by this, you see it so centrally, is that our relationship to money is it's an essential part of Jesus' rescue. It's not like a side thing. But it's an essential part of what Jesus both rescues us from and, and saves us for. What he's doing in our lives. Why is this? Well, because we all have a money problem. Now, yours might not be the same as, as Zacchaeus's. In fact, I'm pretty sure it isn't. Maybe, maybe you're here, uh, you know, extorting uh, money out of poor people as a, t- as a tax collector. Um, if you are, we're really glad that you're here uh, this morning. But I imagine that most of you, that's, that's not, you don't have the same money problem as Zacchaeus. But we all have a money problem, don't we? We all have a problem with the ways that our lifestyles tend to overcommit our paychecks. We all, when it comes to money, deal with fear. We deal with worry, with greed, with excess. All of us wrestle with these things. How to make wise choices. We all have a money problem. But the good news is that a relationship with Jesus does transform your relationship with money. So in light of that, let's, let's consider three diagnostic questions that Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus raises for each of us. There's three questions for us to consider together here. The first is, have I received Jesus into my lifestyle? Have I received Jesus into my lifestyle? Now, that might sound kind of like an odd way to, to state a question or frame. Is like, what does it mean to invite him into my lifestyle? 
But I think it gets at what happens to Zacchaeus here. Because sometimes if you've been around Christians, you've grown up around Christians, you've spent time around Christians, you've maybe heard this language of, of receiving Jesus into your life or inviting Jesus into your heart, which those aren't let's say bad ways of talking about what it means to come and to a relationship with Jesus, to put your trust in Jesus, to, to invite him into your heart. But sometimes that kind of language, oh, I invited Jesus into my heart, or, I, I received Jesus into my life. I think the danger with that language, though, is that we kind of keep Jesus confined to the spiritual or sort of pietistic place in our lives. I've invited him into my heart, like into my spirituality. And, and we can fall into the trap then that, that all Jesus really wants from us is, is warm feelings or a quiet time in the morning or coming to church on Sunday. All those are good, important things. But Jesus cares about a lot more than 15 minutes in the morning or 75 minutes on a Sunday. He cares about all of your life. And sometimes that language sort of shapes our thinking into just giving Jesus a tiny little part of our life, this kind of spiritual part of our life. And it ends up creating this sacred secular divide. But our relationship with Jesus should transform our lifestyle. He cares about all of that here and now, not just about other worldly things some, some point off in the future or just with, quote, spiritual things. Dr. Martin Luther King, who we remember and celebrate tomorrow, states this powerfully in his letter from a Birmingham jail. Dr. King writes this. He says, in the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice. Notice how he ties those two things together. I've heard so many ministers say those are social issues with the gospel has no real concern. And I've watched so many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion which makes a strange distinction between body and soul, the sacred and the secular. When Jesus enters Zacchaeus' life, he immediately recognized that Jesus matters for everything, not just his prayers in the morning or his synagogue attendance on Saturday. It changes everything. Jesus doesn't just want to be invited into your life. He wants to be invited into your wallet. He wants to be invited into your lifestyle. Have you received Jesus into your lifestyle? Second, we need to ask, is my relationship with money, is it countercultural? Is my relationship with money countercultural? You see, not only does Jesus encounter uh, Zacchaeus' encounter with Jesus completely transform his relationship to money, but it does so in a countercultural way. And I think our Western culture has been so shaped um, in its roots by sort of a Christian understanding of generosity that we don't really realize how radical what Zacchaeus does here is. Because in the first century, there was this category of giving, of almsgiving, of giving to the poor, but what there wasn't was a category, an idea of giving without expecting anything at all in return. This is really something new on the scene with Jesus and his followers. Because even if you were giving to someone poor, there was almost a sense of kind of like, a, a, they wouldn't have called it this, but kind of like a karma that if I, I do this, then I'll, I won't probably get something back from this poor person, but I'll get something good back from someone else. There was always sort of this self-interest in the giving. This idea of simply giving without expecting anything at all in return was a brand new idea. And yet when Jesus encounters 
Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus spends time with him. That's exactly what Jesus does, or Zacchaeus does on his own. He just, he gives half of his stuff away without any kind of interest in, in getting anything back or receiving any kind of um, good coming back to him in some way. He just does it out of his desire to show his, his, his joy and his love for Jesus. Everything that Zacchaeus does here is countercultural. Is our relationship with money countercultural? And here's a way to get at that, one way to kind of begin to think through that in your life. Um, and that is simply to look in, around in your neighborhood, in your school, in your office, at, at people who, you know, as best as you know, have about the same income level as you. And then ask yourself, is my life, my lifestyle, different from theirs in any significant way? You see, our, our relationship to money should be countercultural enough that our generosity, our giving away of money, actually causes us to need to live at a, at a slightly lower level of lifestyle than those who make the same amount of money than, uh, as us, but who, don't, who, aren't, who aren't giving generously. Is that true for us? Are we, are we countercultural in that way? Are we actually choosing to live on less than we, we make so that we can be generous? Are our budgets good news for the poor? And then finally, what is my view of the good life? See, all of us, have, it's mostly unconscious, but nevertheless, all of us have a very real and incredibly life-shaping answer to that question, what is the good life? It's shaped and influenced by the culture we live in, the advertising we see, the, the shows and stories and movies that we watch and read. What is the truly good life? I realized after Christmas how quickly, you know, my view of the good life can just become so truncated so quickly, so it can be made so small. One of the, the things I got a little bit of money from, for uh, Christmas from uh, my parents and from Rachel's parents, and so I, I pulled this little money together and I bought, I think which is actually my favorite present, the one I bought myself, I guess, um, but I bought a Patagonia Performance Better Sweater, this just a little zip fleece thing. But I love this thing. I've been wanting it. And I think if, Rachel, I think I've worn it every day since I, I bought it back in uh, the week of Christmas. Uh, maybe one day I haven't worn it, but I'll probably go and put it on after, after church today. I love this thing. And, but what I found myself doing after Christmas was I, I was like, oh, this is such a great piece of clothing. And I was like reading more about Patagonia. And I do think they're one of the best clothing companies in the world. I think they make great stuff. They have a great business model. But I, I found myself like setting up like eBay alerts for like Patagonia bags and stuff. And I just like found myself thinking about Patagonia all the time. And then I'm sitting here writing this, this message this week and it just kind of hit me hard. It's like, wait, Bill, like the good life is more than just finding like a good deal on Patagonia stuff on eBay. And yet, and there's nothing wrong with having Patagonia stuff. I, I love it. I think they make great gear. I'll probably get more of it over my life. But like, it's so easy, right, for our view of the good life to get shrunk down to something like that? To a jacket? And, and maybe your thing isn't Patagonia, but we all have those things, right? The, 
it's the vacation or whatever it is. And, and we just, we shrink the picture of the good life that Jesus offers us down so small. It's the good life in Jesus' economy is one of generosity. One where it's more blessed to give than to receive. One that runs contrary to nearly every message you receive in a consumer-based economy. Will you let your view of the good life go to the highest bidder, to the best advertising? Or will you let it be radically shaped by Jesus who loves you and gave himself for you? Okay, so in light of those questions, what's the next step that we can take together? Well, I'd encourage you, if you haven't done this in a while, to take some time this month. We're still at the beginning of the year in January, maybe even tomorrow on Blue Monday if you have a little bit of time. Do this. Take just kind of sit back and take stock of the lifestyle that you've committed yourself to. And ask yourself, is, is it countercultural? Am I really living counterculturally with respect to my resources, my money, my possessions? And take a hard look at the places where, where could I begin to build margin to, to begin to be more generous? Or, or maybe to step for the first time into this place of, of being generous. It may look like uh, signing up for Financial Peace University. It's not the magic bullet, but it's a really helpful program. We're going to offer that again this year uh, in the spring here at the Brookside campus. We have some other campuses that are offering it, I think, starting even now. So consider taking Financial Peace to help hone your budgeting skills, create margin, get out of debt. It may look just like just taking a small step, just starting somewhere in your giving. Maybe you think, oh, God, Bill, I could never give 10% or I don't, 5% even seems impossible with the debt I have right now. And I, just start somewhere. Start somewhere and let Jesus inspire you to give more than you thought you possibly could. And let me also say here in this moment that so many of you do an incredible job of modeling this kind of life of generosity. I am routinely humbled and challenged and inspired by the generosity of so many in this congregation. Now let me just give you a few examples of that. Uh, for one, this, you know, our, our fiscal year starts in, in October. This first quarter of our fiscal year has been fantastic. And the year I'm giving in December was incredibly generous. So thank you for the ways that you are loving Christ's bride, the local church, through your generosity. Uh, along with that, you know, we, we're in the middle of this Reach KC initiative, raising uh, money to build in Olathe and by land in Shawnee Mission. That construction project has been ongoing in, uh, in Olathe, and we have yet to have to borrow any money for that project. Now, we will here at the end of January. That's coming. But so far, all the months that construction is going on, we've been able to fund that from, from cash on hand and commitments that have been coming in. So thank you for your generosity in that. Um, if you're ever curious about budgets and financial statements, all that stuff's on our website, so please feel free always to visit there. And if you have questions to ask me or any of our pastors or elders, we'd love to answer any questions that you have. So thank you for being such an incredibly generous congregation. Let's continue to excel in more ways in this. And if you haven't jumped in and, and taken part in this yet, we want you to get to be a part of this joy with us. Join in this. And even as I talk about joining in the midst of that joy, if you're like me, at least how I felt when I was writing this message, 
you may also in the midst of this be feeling some mixture of, of guilt, conviction, maybe just feeling overwhelmed. Why did I go to church today? It was snowing. I could have stayed home. I didn't have to hear this. And that's because none of us have arrived in this area. None of us have, have figured this out perfectly. All of us have room to grow. But I want you to know, no matter who you are, or what mistakes you've made, or how much of a mess your finances are, let me just say to you this morning that Jesus loves you. He loves you right here in the middle of it. And he sees you. And he wants to rescue you. Not just your soul, but your whole life. Zacchaeus was seeking Jesus, but ultimately Jesus was seeking him. And he's seeking you. And that's why he came to seek and save the lost. He came to deliver you, to rescue you from yourself, from your fear, from your greed, from the empty, endless material consumption that promises so much but can never give you what it promises. And let me say this, if there is hope for someone like Zacchaeus, a hated perpetrator of massive economic injustice, then there's hope for you. There's hope for you in your credit card debt. There's hope for you in your outsized lifestyle. There's hope for each and every one of us. If there's hope for Zacchaeus, there's hope for you. And when you have that kind of hope, that kind of radical acceptance from Jesus, you can't help but be generous. And what would it look like if, if our church, if our city was filled with people who had their lives and their finances transformed the way that Zacchaeus had? How would it, it shape our relationships, transform the economic realities of our city? We certainly have a long way to go as a church and growing into this, but because of your generosity as a church, this, this year alone we'll give away nearly $100,000 to churches and church plants in Kansas City who are working in economically depressed parts and challenging parts of our city. Because of the generosity of this congregation, refugees and immigrants will be cared for in the Kansas City area this year. Because of the generosity of this congregation, Families in crisis will receive help in paying bills, and getting back on their feet. People who are in desperate need of counseling will, will be able to, that, but can't necessarily afford to pay that, will be helped in that. You see, our relationship with Jesus transforms our relationship in money, and that in turn transforms our neighborhoods, our city, and our world. So let's commit to growing together in this, to going deeper in this together in 2018. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that you see us right where we are. That you don't wait for us to get it figured out before you look up where we're hiding and say, come down. I'm going to come spend time with you. Thank you that you are seeking out each and every one of us. I pray that we would let go of the small views of the good life that keep us from something so much better. Give me an imagination for that. Give us an imagination for what that can be like and then give us the faith. Give us the, the ability to take steps of obedience there. 
We know you want our best. Help us to trust that you truly have it in mind and do the countercultural things that seem foolish to everyone else but our wisdom in your kingdom. In Jesus' name.